I started researching and then I saw there is a connection between endometriosis and diet. And, and by that time, you know, I've been struggling with this for 10 years or more and really my whole life, I feel like. And I, I was so angry, Chuck. You know, I was so angry. Like, why didn't anyone tell me this? But I immediately cut out. That's when I became vegan. So I cut out eggs. I cut out dairy. I cut out cheese and milk and all of that. And within, I would say, weeks, I felt better, considerably better. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world. Hello to the Exam Roomies listening in Spain, Romania, Taiwan, and everywhere in between. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 100 of season four. That's got a nice ring to it. Number 295 overall. And for this momentous episode, we will be spotlighting a disease that often flies under the radar despite the fact that more women have it than you may think. Endometriosis. How common is it? Well, researchers estimate that at least 11% of women have it in the United States. That equates to more than six and a half million women right now who are suffering with it. And the global rate is nearly identical. And with endometriosis, it's often also more than just physical pain. It's the sadness that can accompany it as women who are stricken with endometriosis a lot of them never will be able to have children. So today we're going to learn more about what endometriosis is, but we're also going to be providing optimism, a reason to have a little bit of faith that yes, things can get better. We will hear from a doctor who will be sharing her battle with endometriosis for the very first time. And while there were many years, beginning in her early teens, when she was struggling, with that sorrow facing the reality that she may never be able to have her own children, dark days, painful periods, and a heavy heart, well, this doctor would ultimately find hope by rethinking how she was treating endometriosis and making changes that would ultimately lead to her years-long battle coming to an end and a new bundle of joy, by the way, being welcomed to her family. Dr. Asha Supermanian, she is the founder of Dia Lifestyle and Wellness. She is here today to raise our health IQs and our spirits. And also today we will be revisiting a conversation with Dr. Neil Barnard about endometriosis. And this is something that he has covered extensively of late. So he and I are going to be getting more into the why of endometriosis, the hormones behind it, and what can be done to control them. But we start with Dr. Asha Supermanian, who is sharing her journey to health for the very first time. Thank you so very much for being here again, Dr. Asha. Thank you so much, Chuck, and thank you to the Exam Room Podcast listeners for having me here today. We're thrilled that you are here today. Uh, and, and me personally, you know, I, I should just put this disclaimer at the top of this episode that you are indeed one of my favorite people in the entire world because you're just so positive with everything. So I really hope that people can take away a lot of that energy today and come away from this educated with a, a raised health IQ, but also full of hope as well, because that's really what this boils down to today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Let's talk uh, first about what endometriosis actually is. So we're talking about one out of every 10 women will get it, unfortunately, in their lifetime. But what exactly are they getting? So endometriosis is an illness where the endometrium or the lining of the inside lining of the uterus, rather than growing inside the uterus and being shed every month for unknown reasons, there are many theories behind it, but for unknown reasons, grows in other places. So it may grow 
on the ovaries. It may grow in the fallopian tubes. It may grow actually in the lining of the ab abdominal cavity. And there have been cases where it's migrated to the lungs, the eye, and other organs. So that is the definition of endometriosis. It is a very, very painful condition in many women. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but it doesn't have to be painful. And um, the reason is because the lining is, is built up and then shed every month, but then this is happening outside the uterus. So there's nowhere for that fl menstrual flow essentially to go. And um, what happens is endometriosis can have effects on um, pain. So um, it can cause chronic pelvic pain. It can cause monthly menstrual pain in women. It can cause um, uh, GI problems. So if it's in the abdominal cavity, it can cause diarrhea, constipation, bloating, abdominal pain. Um, it can also cause um, infertility, which is a very unfortunate common side effect of endometriosis. And um, very quickly, there are many reasons why people think that women develop endometriosis. It does run in families. Um, we find if mothers, grandmothers, or also on the paternal side, the father side, if somebody has endometriosis, you are at higher risk. Um, there is also a theory about retrograde menstruations. So what that means is for whatever reason, the um, cells from the monthly flow, they get released backwards, essentially, instead of coming out from the um, uterus and vaginal area, they go out through the fallopian tubes and out into the abdominal cavity that way. There is also a theory on immune dysfunction so that folks with endometriosis, their immune um, systems are not recognizing the endometriosis, um, the tissue outside of the uterus, and their bodies are not fighting it and getting rid of it. So therefore, um, it's an immune dysfunction type issue. So there's really um, many different causes. And there's a lot of research going into this, but unfortunately, not enough research, in my opinion, and not fast enough, because we have so many women suffering from this condition. And the reason why you're here today is you were one of those women who was suffering from endometriosis. I had no idea that you had battled this until you sent me an email about a, a week or two ago. And you were like, look, I've never disclosed this publicly before, but I would love to come on the show to talk about my journey so that others who are currently struggling with this understand that there is a plan that can be put together that involves you know, changing your diet, changing what you eat, changing your lifestyle, and then hopefully they can find a lot of relief from that. And mm -hmm. so let's, let's give some inspiration there and, and talk about your journey. How old were you when you first noticed something was amiss? So I started my periods when I was about 13 and a half. And um, around that time, I had, you know, got my period. And, you know, as many teens um, experience, it's kind of like a shock. Whoa, like what's going on? And, you know, I knew about it, but when it actually happens, but then quickly after I noticed that my periods um, became painful, I started having menstrual cramps um, before my periods and they seemed to be getting worse. And, you know, I was kind of told, oh, all girls, all women go through this. And, you know, mom went through this, grandma went through this. And, take um, Advil or ibuprofen or, you know, Tylenol, whatnot. And, and I did, and it helped, but the trajectory was not really going in the right direction. It was getting worse, not better. So 13 and a half, uh, that's uh, right in there in that high school age range. Yeah. And so high school in itself is awkward enough, but then to put this on top of it, how much of a, like a, a quality of life hit did you take because you were struggling so much every month? I definitely noticed like on the, um, the few days before my period and during my period, I would get up a lot earlier because of the pain. I just couldn't sleep because the pain was so much until I had to take the next ibuprofen. And I was taking, um, by that time, you know, 600, 800 milligrams at a time, you know, which is, which is on the higher end of dosing. And I would, my flow was heavy, um, but not incredibly heavy, but definitely heavier, you know, during the painful times. And that would impact me with sports and just social activities and such. It wasn't a great feeling to be in high school and having 
having this monthly pain to look forward to really. And it was always like, okay, I'm done with the pain, but you know, in a couple of weeks, it's going to come back. And I, and it was sort of something I resigned myself to, which is sad. You mentioned that when you first started to get your period, it wasn't long thereafter that you noticed that things became painful. Did that pain intensify over the years? It did. My pain did intensify. And I started finding that my kind of go-to treatment of Advil and um, or Motrin, you know, ibuprofen wasn't really working anymore. And when it really hit me was actually when I um, started medical school. So fast forward a couple years later, I'm in medical school, I'm supposed to be going to lectures and learning about histopathology and physiology and anatomy and all the things we learn in the beginning of medical school. And I found myself waking up with nausea and vomiting multiple times during the day and being buckled over in pain. And I couldn't go to class. So I sought medical help, of course, at that time. Obviously, I've never been to medical school. I'm not a doctor, but I would imagine that being a med student in itself is extremely stressful. And then to be dealing with this on top of that, I mean, how much did that compound all of the stress that you were already under? You know, looking back, it was incredibly stressful. In fact, I think about how did I make it through? I, I actually... Um, I think about that every day. And I actually ended up having to take a small leave of absence in between um, my second and third years um, because of pain in part that I was having and, and these symptoms of endometriosis. And um, during that time when I sought medical help, I was told that I likely have endometriosis. And um, by that time, I was about 25 years old, um, something like that, um, 24, 25, that I likely have endometriosis, but the only way to diagnose it, which is still to this day, pretty much the gold standard of diagnosis is something called a laparoscopy, where it is a surgery where you go under general anesthesia and the surgeon puts in cameras through small belly button and other incisions. Um, in your abdomen and looks around and has to visualize that you have endometriosis. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun. Um, well, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming uh, up till this point, you were on the, the standard course of treatment, correct? Yes. Yeah, so pretty much what I was told is continue your ibuprofen therapy and Start it two, three days before your period rather than, you know, waiting till those cramps hit and um, go on oral contraceptives, which are birth control pills, essentially. And, you know, that would let, um, lighten your flow and um, make the make the pain better. And it did. I, I did that because I trusted my doctors and I did that and it did it did help, but it never took that baseline away. And I ended up actually having Chuck a laparoscopy while in medical school, which was very awkward because it was it was done by um, attendings and residents that I worked with on rotations. And then here they are having me as a patient. It was very awkward thinking back. But um, it was confirmed that I had um, stage one endometriosis, which is considered mild. There are four stages. So I was diagnosed um, in the middle of medical school with stage one endometriosis. And what I will never forget is the chief of OBGYN at my medical school looked at me, um, you know, in the post-operative appointment and said, Asha, you have endometriosis. You need to have children as soon as possible. Wow. Now imagine being told that you need to have children as soon as possible. When you're in the middle of medical school, you have no partner, you have no money, and you, you're, you're. It was like a ton of bricks falling on me, you know. But, yeah. but I, I kind of just said, well, you know, I'm not in that position. I'm not going to run out and find the first, <laughs> first person here. Um, and I just kind of said, okay, I'll continue the treatment because I was told to continue, you know, the birth control pills and the, the Advil therapy as I'll call it. And that was it. Nowhere was mentioned dietary change, lifestyle change, nothing else. 
Yeah, oh boy. Uh, we're we're going to talk about diet in just a second. I assure yeah. you that. But that is that is a heck of a bombshell to drop on somebody in their mid twenties in medical school. Yeah, not seeing anybody doesn't have a lot of money to their name, and you're like, at eh, time to have kids. It's like, whoa, pump the brakes on that. That is not part of the life plan that I had mapped out. Did that right. bring a sense of panic to you? I mean, I assume that you wanted children. Yes. Yeah, so I did want to address that. So, you know, I was somebody who um, always envisioned myself having children. I wanted children and to be to, for that information to be dropped on me like that was, yes, it, it was panic inducing. I mean, again, I think back and this is, of course, now many years later. And I think back, how did I even get through that period? You know, what what how did I get through that? And and I think I just took it one day at a time, which is something I still do. I still take things one day at a time. But, um, you know, I didn't know who to turn to. Like, I really, um, I didn't feel like my doctors really had a lot of knowledge. I'm, I'm in the middle of school. It was, um, it was a tough place to be in. That is a lot. Uh, that is a lot. But it also is is proof that you are, in fact, superwoman in disguise. Um, the Thanks. fact that you were were able to persevere. I mean, boy, I mean, that's a heck of a story uh, in itself. But uh, there are many more layers to this onion to, to peel. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that there was no discussion about diet. Uh, or lifestyle um, with that initial diagnosis. Uh, I'm curious though, like what was your diet like up until this point? Yeah, so I was, I was probably what you call a convenient vegetarian. <laughs> and by that, I mean, um, I, I would have, um, or even I would say semi-vegetarian, you know, I was eating a lot of processed food. I was living in a dormitory style place. You know, I couldn't really cook for myself. I didn't know how to cook for myself. Um, I was eating a lot at the hospital. Um, so hospital food, as you all know, is not very healthy, unfortunately. Um, a lot of, um, because I was trying to eat more vegetarian, um, I would eat a lot of cheese, a lot of dairy, um, a lot of processed food. Um, I would have some chicken and um, turkey and other things at that time. So, you know, I, I was trying my best, but it just was not a helpful food environment at all. And when, when did you become a vegetarian? Is that something that, that popped on your radar very early in life? Yeah, so my my cultural tradition where I grow up, um, where I grew up from. So my parents are from India. So they, um, it was very interesting. So they are um, first generation immigrants. So when they came to this country in the um, mid '60s, and then my mom in the early '70s, they tried to keep a more vegetarian tradition at home, but they encouraged my brother and myself, and I understand why to want to be able to assimilate with American culture. And that meant to my family, that meant eating at Denny's and Perkins and McDonald's and Burger King and, you know, being able to kind of hang with the American folks, you know, in, in our community. So I grew up like that. So I did eat vegetarian food at home um, for most part. But then when I went out, that's what I associate in my mind. You know, when I went out, I had fast food essentially. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's so hard to eat healthy when you're when you're eating out, regardless. So yeah. Um, so all right, let's uh, pick up here. So you've just had uh, that first surgery. They've told you uh, now is the time to have kids, uh, but you are still smack dab in the middle uh, in the middle of medical school. So you know you're trying to process all of this and still trying to move forward. And how did you move forward at that point? You know, I think I. And this may be in a in a very naive way, but I kept hope. You know, I said, um, I said, you know, I'm I'm going to be hopeful. He said that, but you know, I'm going to find somebody soon, and I'm this is all going to work out. And you know, I did get relief from the surgery for a, a, um, some years actually, because what they do in the surgery is they visualize endometriosis and they essentially scrape it out this extra tissue. Now the problem is microscopic cells still remain, but the, the tissue they scraped out, you know, that is not shedding every month and not causing the pain. So 
I said, okay, I'm just going to kind of go with this and kind of get through. And I decided to go into family medicine. Um, family medicine for me was sort of the ultimate specialty. I could do a little of everything. I could work with families, um, a lot of um, psychosocial work, um, and also women's health, of course, which is an interest of mine. Um, so, so I ended up, unfortunately, having three more surgeries after that, this initial one that I mentioned in detail. Yeah. How and, long was it before the uh, pain returned after that initial surgery? Yeah. So I would say thinking back, probably it was a couple years. It was a couple years. Um, I, I stayed on the treatments that they recommended. I really didn't change any diet change. And then when I was a resident, it kind of continued the same hospital food, you know, at that time, residents were doing 36 hour call, you know, every fourth night, um, you know, there was even more stress in some ways. Um, I enjoyed residency, I really um, learned a lot. And I was doing what I finally wanted to do. But, you know, again, the dietary piece was not optimal, the exercise piece was non existent, you know, and <laughs> Unfortunately, I ended up gaining some weight um, during, you know, that time, which is um, believable because you're not exercising, you're not eating well. And um, the pain kind of, it was very insidious, you know, it crept back slowly, crept back slowly, crept back slowly. And I ended up, you know, like I said, having three more surgeries. So I've had four surgeries so far, all for the same condition. And actually, um, one one of my ovaries was actually removed because wow. it, it was penetrated infiltrated by endometriosis and it was just they said it just doesn't work anymore i mean the, the ovary is the size of an almond essentially so you know it's a very very small organ but it has obviously very important effects and so that was taken out how old were you when that occurred hmm um probably around like early 30s okay yeah. Uh, were you still in residency at that point or uh, had you moved past that? I had moved past that. Um, I had actually met somebody and um, someone who I uh, wanted to start a family with and then quickly realized that this, this was not going anywhere. So, you know, month after month, it, um, our journey to have a family, to build a family was not going anywhere. And that opened up a whole other journey for me, which is infertility. So, you know, as you said in the beginning of the segment, um, infertility is a very, very common um, effect of endometriosis. And, you know, some women like me have pain and other women don't even know they have endometriosis, but they find that they have infertility and then they're diagnosed after that with endometriosis. And I, I do wanna put out there that um, one, in um, eight families in the United States uh, experiences infertility. So this is not uncommon. And I wanna say this out loud. And the reason is because no one told me this, no one talked about this. It was sort of like a shameful thing, especially you know, five or 10 years ago, right? Or even before that. And I, I'm glad that people in the media are, are actually talking about this more, that celebrities are talking about this more, and I'm going to add my voice to this, this mix today as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I, there should not be any shame as, associated with that. I mean, there, there's plenty of pain that comes with it naturally. Um, mm -hmm. and, and why add to that with, mm -hmm. with shame? Like it's, it's not that person's fault for goodness sakes. Um, so, uh, I mean, you don't know what you, what you, what you don't know. Um, and so I understand also though, as you, uh, were trying to conceive, uh, I would imagine that you also maybe had some miscarriages along the way. Yes. Um, unfortunately I, I had, um, several, um, several miscarriages. Um, I, you know, some of them were further along than others and really, you know, again, I had excellent doctors, very caring doctors. Um, they just said, well, it's the endometriosis. And again, going back to what we spoke about, there may be some kind of immune system effect that my body was rejecting these, these early pregnancies. And to, 
to go through to go through all that, you know, I you're not alone. I want to tell your audience members if they themselves, their family members, friends, you know, you are not alone. You know, talk talk about it with people, get it out there. And I again, I'm glad to see that it's a little more um, common to speak of it now because I felt so alone. I felt so isolated. And I'll, I'll tell you a story, um, Chuck. So you know, by this time I was a practicing family physician. I was in a very busy group practice. And I remember having, you know, to go through infertility treatments and to go through, um, you know, all the steps that that takes and literally to get a phone call that I was not pregnant, that it hadn't worked. And literally 10 minutes later, I had to step into a patient room diagnose her pregnancy and tell her that she was pregnant mm. while I had literally just been told a few minutes before that the nth time that I'm trying didn't work. How do you even begin to compartmentalize that? I, I just can't even fathom having to have that type of conversation. You know, I think unfortunately medical training, you know, prepared me for this um, in the sense that you compartmentalize things. You are sort of in a sense, you are numbed, you know, you go through training and you compartmentalize things. You're like, okay, you know, this patient, this is what's going on. Okay. Let's let it not affect the next patient. And I'm not saying this is a good thing at all, but I think my medical training served me in that on that day. And there was more than one day Chuck like that, unfortunately, um, you know, where I got bad news, um, about myself, but yet had to go and take care of patients who had good news. And I'm, I want to celebrate that good news with them. And I, I want to be there for them. They are my patients, but to be undergoing that at the same time, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. I, again, I, I just can't even wrap my head around those conversations. Um, but here's also kind of what I'm wondering at this point is you have been practicing now for a number of years um, and you're still having the same struggles and nobody to the best of my knowledge has even broached the idea of diet and lifestyle with you yet when it comes to endometriosis. That's absolutely correct. Not one person brought this up, not, not the um, lead OBGYNs at the medical school, um, not my own doctors, you know, um, as I went along in my journey, not one person. And I have to say around 2012 or so is when by that time, by 2012, I was vegetarian, but I was still having copious amounts of yogurt and um, you know, dairy products and, and I ate eggs and all of that. And I started researching because I was at a point where I was pretty desperate and I, I knew that I'm not going to get answers from anyone. So I sort of, you know, decided I need to research and I started researching. And then I saw there is a connection between endometriosis and diet. And, and by that time, you know, I've been struggling with this for 10 years or more, and um, probably 15 years, um, really my whole life, I feel like. And I, I was so angry, Chuck, you know, I was so mm. angry, like, why didn't anyone tell me this, but I immediately cut out, that's when I became a vegan. So I cut out eggs, I cut out dairy, I cut out, you know, cheese and milk and all of that. And within, I would say, weeks, I felt better, considerably better. Mm. Mm. That anger is understandable, no question about it. Was that also, though, kind of tempered by a sense of relief? Like, finally, Eureka, this is this, this is why now I get it. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was actually tempered by relief and also by hope. Mm. You know, this was something that I could control. And I use that word in particular because I can say that, you know, going through all of this as a medical professional, you often feel like 
you know, things are like, okay, if you study hard, you know, you'll get a good grade on the test. If you, you know, pass all your exams, you'll get into the residency of your choice, or you'll get the job of your choice, you know, if you work hard. And endometriosis, if you work hard, doesn't get better, mm. you know? And, yeah. and same with infertility. You can work hard at it, but it doesn't get better. But this, changing your diet did make it better, considerably better. And, and um, I did not look back. I did not look back. That's when, you know, I became vegan. I <clears throat> then started exploring, you know, more into lifestyle medicine. And that's, that started on my, started me on my journey where I am today. Oh, what a journey it is. Um, so you said that it, it wasn't long before you started to notice, like maybe things weren't as painful as they used to be, you mm -hmm. know, you, your symptoms were changing, you're feeling better. Um, were you then, you, so this, this hope that you were talking about, I would imagine then that you became a lot more optimistic, like, Hey, you know, maybe finally I will be able to conceive and, and carry to term. Yeah. You know, I, I had that hope. Um, I can tell you along the way, I was told that I would never have children um, because my endometriosis was so severe. And I, to this day, credit my dietary and lifestyle changes with the birth of my daughter, who is now seven. So I um, am so happy to be a mother. It is the best thing ever. Um, but I credit I credit that dietary and lifestyle change and the work of PCRM and Dean Ornish and Neil Barnard and all the other giants um, whose shoulders I stand upon today. Boy, yeah. Boy, so seven-year-old daughter, I mean, tell me about the emotions of that day. Anytime that you you welcome a child into the world, it's, it's the greatest day of your life. But for you and your husband, I mean, it must have been even extra special. Oh, it, it's like absolutely the greatest day of my life. Probably that day and the day I got into college. <laughs> so, <laughs> those those two days. But I have to say, for me, every step of my pregnancy, I was completely vegan. I was whole food, plant-based vegan um, by then. And my pregnancy was the most uneventful non-procedural pregnancy that you would ever have. I mean, people looked at me, my friends, my coworkers, they're like, you're glowing. You know, Dr. Asha, you're glowing. And, and you know, that I felt like I was on air the whole pregnancy. I mean, I had very little side effects like people talk about with pain and vomiting and, and feeling horrible. And, and, you know, I carried my daughter to term. I had a normal delivery actually. I didn't exactly plan it this way, but she came so quickly that there was no intervention at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, uh, when I say that out loud, Chuck, um, cause as you know, this is the first time I'm really talking about all this out loud. I mean, it was just such a perfect, um, sort of capstone to this horrible journey. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I hate to ask a woman her age, but how old were you when your daughter was born? I was 40 years old. All right. So let's, let's let that fact sink in there. 40 years old, having your first child after having suffered from endometriosis for the past roughly 27 years years and having been told flat out, you will never have children. And now here you are 40 years old, welcoming your daughter into the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you said that you wanted to offer hope at the top of this segment. And if that doesn't offer hope and optimism and inspiration to those who are currently struggling with this, Dr. Asha, I'm not even sure what, what possibly could. Thank you, Chuck. Um, I must say, actually, I was I was 40. I was almost 41. A month later, I turned 41. So there you go. Even better. Even better. Even better. Even better. But um, yeah, you know, my, my doctors during the pregnancy monitored me, of course, extremely carefully, because unfortunately, if you're 35 or above, you're considered advanced maternal age in the OBGYN kind of um, venue. So, you know, I was I was um, monitored very carefully. 
Uh, I uh, continued, like I said, my vegan diet. I exercised um, throughout my whole pregnancy. Um, I did weight training. I did walking. I did biking. I did aerobics. I, I, I did everything. And I felt so strong and fit even at the end. And, you know, starting where I was in pain and eating so poorly and fatigue and, and depression, frankly, to, to that day when she was born, just, you know, it's just tremendous to think about. It really is like, even it just blows me away right now talking about it. Yeah. Could you even imagine when you were having your darkest days and in such despair that you would have this radical health transformation and welcome a daughter into the world? No, not at all. And, you know, I, um, you know, I thank, of course, my doctors, and I thank um, all the research that's been done on all of this. But of course, I, you know, have to thank, um, you know, the the higher power, so to speak, you know, for for all the blessings that you know um, he or she has given me um, to to be able to to be in this position. And you know, I think about how how today, you know, I'm a board certified family physician, I'm also certified in lifestyle medicine. And I've gone through this journey. And I feel like, you know, I've been placed here for a reason. I really do. I, I feel that way. And it's understandable. And because you feel that calling, you're really working to help other people. And in addition to being a practicing physician, uh, you have started uh, DIA uh, Health and, and Wellness. And, and I think that, or Lifestyle and Wellness, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it goes to the heart of everything that you and I have been talking about here today. And that is helping people, you know, mm -hmm. overcome those health challenges. Um, when you're working with somebody at DIA, what is that process like and, and what kind of, um, you know, chronic diseases are, are you helping people with? So when, when I work with someone through DIA, I really focus on the whole person. So often they come to me, they have multiple um, people have multiple multiple medical conditions, like example, diabetes, high blood pressure, they might be overweight or have obesity, um, cholesterol, um, sometimes arthritis, asthma, you know, you name it, so many conditions, um, folks are on so many medicines, and they are just not improving. It's kind of parallel to where I was at, Chuck. So, you know, you're on the medicines, you're doing what the medical folks are telling you to do, but it's just not getting better. It's sort of the band-aid solution or it's just getting worse. And they they want more information. What else can be done? And I want to be that health educator, that health coach, that cheerleader, that support, that sounding board, that that person, that someone in this position who's faced with chronic illness they can turn to me, we can work together to improve those conditions, to reverse those conditions in some cases, and to really improve their quality of life. And that's what I hope to accomplish with, with DIA. And I yeah. started this, I started Go. this in, um, actually before the pandemic, great timing, but I started this, this, um, this business because that's not something I'm really given the opportunity with in my day job. So, you know, in my day job, I'm a primary care physician. I love my patients. I love my work, but it's not the structure where I can really delve into the root causes of chronic illness and work one one on one with patients. Although I do mention it, of course, in my daily work. Of, of course. But I think that one of the cool parts here that I, I think that we need to stress here when we're talking about DIA is because you're not acting as a physician uh, at DIA and you're acting as a, a, a health coach, that opens you up to be able to work with patients literally across the country. And so, you know, if you're living in California, you're in Los Angeles right now, you're struggling with endometriosis and you want to work with somebody who's been through that struggle. That is exactly why you are there, Dr. Asha. That is the cool part about this, right? Yes. So I am, and I put it on my materials as well on my website. So I am not somebody's primary care physician. I am not 
managing medications per se or giving immunizations or that kind of thing. You know, I am there to serve as a health coach, a diet and lifestyle educator, um, a person that has expertise in navigating the medical system. So I've had situations with with clients, with patients where they weren't sure where to go next. And I've talked that through with them. Um, I, I really am a, an advisor really with this expertise. And I can speak from the patient angle as well as the medical professional physician angle. Uh, yeah, it's it's you really do. You have it covered on all fronts. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to call you like the health Sherpa because you are that guide <laughs> through, you know, what can be a treacherous field, uh, you know, trying to navigate all the nuances uh, of of making sure that you get the proper treatment in the medical community. Um, and I, I got to ask you, I mean, I love your story so much. And what I know about you as a person is you are so positive and you are so driven to help. The people who you are working with, I would imagine already, like you're seeing some pretty good success. Yes. Yeah, so I have definitely seen successes in people reducing the amount of diabetes medications they're on. Um, their arthritis has gotten better. They've lost weight. Um, they have improvements in asthma, um, in blood pressure. And of course, you know, it's up to that particular person, that individual to enact the changes that we talk about. But I have seen pretty much in every case, some improvement from small, often very small lifestyle changes. That is, it's the little things that add up over time to make the biggest changes of all. It's, it's. I mean, do not discount those small steps. Don't, don't discount. I mean, that is, that is the fatal flaw that I had when I was over eight. And I think a lot of people get tripped up like that is they're like, ah, oh, taking the stairs that will never make a difference for mm -hmm. me. It's like, yeah, it will, because it builds to that overall, um, healthier lifestyle. Like mm -hmm. you just kind of train yourself to do a bunch of those little things and, oh, it, it just makes such a difference as you, as you well know. Um, so you know what else? Oh my goodness. I almost forgot to mention a uh, walk with the doc. So yes. if you are living in the Washington DC area and um, you want to take a stroll with Dr. Mm -hmm. Asha, you can do that as well. Uh, when and where are you doing these walks these days? Yes. Yeah, so we are doing the walks um, back in person. We are doing it in Wheaton, Maryland at the beautiful Brookside Gardens. And um, we we walk, um, we do wear masks um, per the county code. Um, that may change, of course, with transmission of COVID and um, the infection rate going down. Um, but we currently, you know, we wear masks, we socially distance, but we walk in a group and they have a beautiful paved trail called the Heart, Heart Smart Trail, which is about one mile around the gardens. And we walk all four seasons. We walk the third Saturday of every month at 11 a.m. So the next walk will be November 20th at 11 a.m. And if you um, want more information, it, it will be on, uh, it's on my website. And I, I'm sure Chuck will let listeners know where they can find that. Oh, I'll take care of them. Don't, don't you worry about right. that. <laughs> I, I, don't you worry about that. And uh, that website, by the way, is uh, Dia Lifestyle and Wellness, D-I-Y-A Lifestyle and Wellness.com is the place to go. Or you can click the link that is right now in the show description or the episode notes. I promise you it is a one click and you will not regret working with Dr. Asha. Uh, Dr. Asha, thank you so very much for being here and being so vulnerable and sharing your story and, and offering hope to those who feel hopeless right now, because I can guarantee you that that is exactly what you did today. Thank you so much. I'm always so honored to be on the exam room podcast. And, you know, this is something I've been thinking about a long time um, to share my story. And this is the first time where I've publicly shared my story to, I don't know how many millions of listeners. <laughs> so, um, you know, I thank you, Chuck, for um, having me on your show. And I would love to hear from any listeners um, who are going through the same journey. Um, I'm here for you. So if you just want to say hello, um, you can contact me on Twitter, um, on Facebook, um, direct email, phone, um, whatever works best. 
Dr. Asha, thank you so very much again for your time and sharing your story and bringing hope and inspiration and putting a smile on somebody's face who really needs it today. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Chuck. I was so touched the day that I received an email from Dr. Supermanian saying that she wanted to come on the show to share her story for the very first time open up about her battle with endometriosis because she wanted others to be able to follow in her footsteps, wanted to be able to guide them on their own journey back to health. She said that she wanted to be that helping hand. And I promise you that Dr. Supermanian is as advertised. So if you are in need of help, do not hesitate to reach out to her. DiaLifestyleAndWellness.com is her website. D-I-Y-A LifestyleAndWellness.com And you can also find her on Twitter at Dr. Asha Sub. D-R Asha Sub. And links to everything are in the episode notes. Let's switch gears now and revisit a conversation with Dr. Neil Barnard who shares Dr. Supermanian's optimism. This conversation originally aired early in season three. We did it just as his latest book was being published, Your Body in Balance. And endometriosis is something that he covered in there, writing about it in hopes of not just educating patients, but the practitioners, the doctors as well. And so in this exam room follow-up, Dr. Barnard will take a deeper look at hormonal-related science, the why, of diet and this particular disease. And you're also going to hear about another woman who found success in overcoming endometriosis, Catherine Lawrence Ireland. And so Dr. Barnard and I, we're gonna be zeroing in on the foods that Catherine was eating that caused her hormones to go completely haywire and ultimately led to her significant battle with endometriosis. But more importantly, we'll also look at why the condition miraculously disappeared once she altered her eating habits. And Dr. Barnard is about to make that connection right now as we revisit this conversation on the exam room. Dr. Neil Barnard, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be here today. We were just speaking about Catherine Lawrence, uh, spoke to Catherine Lawrence, actually traveled all the way down to Dallas to, to interview her. Just a wonderful woman. What a yes. remarkable story. And she was just put through the ringer with endometriosis. She told us about what she experienced and how difficult it was. But I'm glad you're here because now you can help us understand a little bit more about the science behind it. What actually was going on? Well, you said it. Uh, women with endometriosis do go through the ringer. Um, first, it, it takes some time to diagnose what's going on, and then the treatments for it are sometimes pretty heroic, um, which uh, the good news, of course, then is that diet changes may be surprisingly powerful for other women, just as they were for Catherine. I mean, they were just night and day for her. Oh, yeah. So w what endometriosis means is it's the endometrium. The endometrium is endo inside the uterus. So inside the uterus is a layer of cells that grow and form a little cushion in the, in the, in the inside of the uterus in case uh, pregnancy might occur. But the problem is that in endometriosis, those cells that are supposed to be lining the uterus somehow have escaped. What we believe is happening is they're going up the fallopian tubes, but where we see them is they're spilling out all around the abdominal cavity and they can implant and then they grow and shrink and grow and shrink with a woman's menstrual cycle. Uh, they cause pain. They can attach to all kinds of, of uh, body parts. They can attach to the intestinal tract so that every time a woman goes to the bathroom, it hurts. Um, they cause uh, what's called dyspareunia, meaning she's gonna have pain during sex. Um, but you can just have pain all month long and it's, for some women, excruciating during their menstrual uh, during the menstrual time. So that's what endometriosis is. Um, and then up until recently, the question was, what do you do about it? Well, you take hormones, you take fistfuls of ibuprofen. Yeah. And if none of that works, um, surgery. Right. Um, and the problem is that often times these don't solve the problem. Right. 
I think I read uh, somewhere when I was doing a little bit of research for this segment that a lot of doctors will actually prescribe opiates if the pain is so overbearing for oh, a yes. woman as well. That to me, I don't, I'm not, I'm just saying that doesn't sound like the best course of treatment to me. Well, it's an index of how bad the pain is. Right. Because for some women, uh, the pain is just unbearable. And so for some days every single month, they're not working, they're not doing anything, they're just lying there miserable. Right. And so surgery, uh, what doctors will do is they'll make a little incision. This is laparoscopic surgery. You right. make it, you put a tube through under the belly button, and you look around and you can remove these implants um, surgically. This is heavy-duty stuff. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that sometimes that surgery, A, it doesn't work at all. The, the person still hurts. Secondly, um, the implants come back. These, these cells come back. And then uh, what I have to say, I think, is one of the really cruel parts of this is that women are sometimes told, you're just not tough enough. Uh, you don't have that bad of a disease. Why is this hurting you so much? Why are you complaining? Why can't you make it into work? And what people had thought, mistake, what doctors had mistakenly thought was that if, if there were not lots of implants all around the abdomen, it shouldn't really hurt very much. Then researchers discovered, wait a minute, the reason that it hurts is that the, in, the individual implants that are, all, that are around the abdomen produce what are called prostaglandins. These are maladjusted chemicals that cause pain. And so it's not a question of how widespread the implants are. It's how much prostaglandins they are producing. And you can have what looks visually like not very extensive disease, but if they are cranking out a lot of these compounds, it's like a knife in your stomach. Mm. And so for, for many women, they feel terrible and their doctors don't understand them and their boss is complaining and, and their life just really gets miserable. Um, it should not be that way. This is a condition that is very common. The treatments for it are, are a big part of uh, OBGYN practice. And what we think is that the answer is food. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about that surgery because Catherine told the story about how she was to go in for this surgery, literally goes in the morning of, gets opened up, and the doctor's like, it's a miracle. You don't need to have this procedure. Right. Well, what happened between the day that it was scheduled and the time that she goes to the operating table? She changes her diet. The doctor seemed to dismiss the fact that diet was, in fact, a role here and what caused this miracle you're saying food is the key. F food, f I, yes. First of all, endometriosis is dependent on estrogens, female sex hormones. Estrogens are dependent on food. And a lot of doctors have not learned this when they were in medical school or later. But there was a fair amount of research back, particularly this started in the 1990s. Researchers wanted to see how can we tackle breast cancer. Breast cancer is driven by estrogens. So the question is, what food choices can we make that will m moderate estrogen activity? And what researchers at Tufts University did, many, many different researchers did this too, but at Tufts, they did a good, a good job. They brought in a large group of women, and they stayed there in the laboratory day after day, and the researchers fed them different diets, high-fiber diets, uh, high, uh, lots of beans and vegetables and fruits and whole grains. And they found that fiber helps to trap excess estrogens and remove them from the body. Hmm. Um, they then fed them high-fat diets, and high-fat diets tended to increase estrogen levels. So fiber was protective. It reduced estrogens. Fat was harmful. It increased estrogens. And then they said, well, let's do both together, high-fiber, really low-fat, and that worked better than, than either one alone. So when Catherine had such terrible endometriosis and she saw a dietetic expert, what did they do? They put her on a plant-based diet because plants have lots of fiber in them and they have very, very little fat. Right. And so you're doing the best of all these things. And what happens? Like, within just days, she starts feeling better. I mean, she's, of course, losing weight and getting better energy and her digestion is better. But what happens is the, the, the liver removes estrogens from the blood. It sends them through the bile duct, which is a little tube leading to the digestive tract. And that's where fiber picks them up and just literally carries the estrogens out. You're, you're flushing them away. So she's suddenly got a lot of fiber in her diet. The excess estrogens are being pulled out, out of, the, out of the body. Those implants start dissolving, 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 go away. She goes to see the surgeon who opens her up and says, what's this? <laughs> where did all the implants go? It's got to be a miracle. Um, well, 
this miracle is something that I think every woman deserves to know about, which is go really high fiber, go really low fat. And the best way to do that is with four groups, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and the, the neglected bean group or legume group, <laughs> because those are the fiber champions. Uh, keep the fat content low. And, and that's important too. Uh, some people will go um, to a more plant-based diet, but they're still eating a lot of grease, right? fatty foods, peanut butter, and oils. Keep those things to a minimum, too, if you're trying to tackle uh, uh, the endometriosis and see how you do. You know, so now I'm kind of getting this picture with how quickly Catherine's turnaround was. And I'm not sure that it's the same rapid change for every woman who changes her diet, but I, I'm kind of... Th- thinking of food here as gasoline on a fire and you have to keep fueling the fire in order for it to keep burning so you keep pouring gasoline on it and high fat food in this case would be that gasoline so when you eliminate that from the diet what happens yeah the fire burns out so uh and i think in Catherine's case perhaps uh, her her beloved blue box macaroni and cheese was the gasoline here great analogy Uh, um i think it's really true um Meat, uh, meat is part of the problem. There was an Italian study that looked at women who ate meat every day, and they compared them to women who ate meat, say, less than half the days of the week. And they found that just that difference, if, if, if people would cut down to, say, three or fewer days a week, that, was, that would cut their endometriosis risk by about 50%. Mm. So, so that was a big thing. Uh, the, at Harvard, the Nurses' Health Study too found much the same thing, that the women who are the big meat eaters had the most endometriosis um, because meat has a lot of fat, has zero fiber. Um, but in Catherine's case, she said, wait a minute, we got to say a word about cheese. Cheese is 70% fat for the typical cheeses. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of fat. It's mostly bad fat, zero fiber. But there's, there's an, an added problem with cheese, and that's that unlike every other food, cheese actually has estrogens in it oh. uh, that come out of the cow in the milk and they're concentrated as milk is turned into cheese so so cheese yes it's very fatty yes it has no fiber but but it has actual estrogens not not a lot it's just traces but we think it's enough to be biologically active this may sound like a silly question but those estrogens exist even in the powdered form of the cheese that comes with the macaroni and cheese because that has dairy though all of that is still in there right um Yes. Uh, the, the, the answer is yes. And I, I know this is breaking the heart of cheese lovers everywhere, right. but, but cows make estrogens right. and it gets into their milk. And it's accentuated by the pretty much universal practice uh, in dairies of impregnating the cows annually. They're artificially inseminated and so they're pregnant um, every, every year. And their gestation is about nine months. So three quarters of every year, the cows are, are pregnant. And a pregnant cow makes extra, extra estrogen that gets into the milk. It, it's not a lot. It's only a trace. It's, right. re, it's really only a trace. But what we think is, wait a minute, a woman's body has all the estrogen she needs, mm-hmm. all the estrogen that Mother Nature had in mind for her, if I can put it that way. And so if you're having a slice of cheese, you're getting extra. Right, right. Let me, as, as we kind of put a, a, a bow on this topic, I wanted to ask you also about uh, so another risk factor for endometriosis, which I looked up, according to the Mayo Clinic, uh, starting a period at an early age. And I believe on a previous show, maybe you and I have discussed that girls nowadays tend to be getting their periods at an earlier and earlier age because I do believe of things like dairy and processed meat, correct? We think that's what's going on. And it's been going on for a very long time. In fact, even back into the middle of the 1800s, if you looked at at what age are do women reach fertility? Right. Uh, when do they when do they reach what, what doctors would call menarche, the first period? It was around 17 or 18 years of age, um, and then it's been slowly dropping. We believe entirely for environmental reasons, and by environment I mean the environment of your dinner table, right? Um, foods um, th- that there's been more and more. Uh, subtraction of fiber from our diet, more and more addition of, of fatty foods and and cheese. Even in 19, I think it was 1904, something like that, 1904, 1906, somewhere around there, the USDA started tracking cheese consumption. In that at that time, the average American couldn't go through four pounds a year. Mm. Today, 34, 35, 38 pounds would be pretty typical. Wow! And and every mouthful has estrogens in it. So we think that these are probably responsible for that change. But you know, if you think about it, at what age is a woman able psychologically to be a mother and to raise a baby? Not at 13, 14, right. but 18, 19, 
maybe so. I mean, that, that's when she's physically and becoming uh, more uh, emotionally mature. Um, so it looks like this change is something that nature didn't have in mind. And, and that's really interesting because you and I recently, and, and you will hear this conversation uh, in a future show, but you and I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Nina and Randa Nelson uh, when we were out in Los Angeles. These were two twins, wonderful young girls, who just suffered from horrific acne. But they have been raised vegan since birth. And they actually said on the show that they didn't hit puberty until a later age. And so I'm just kind of thinking, well, they didn't eat meat. They didn't eat dairy. And so maybe they had that natural timeline that you were just talking about. Um, that's what we think is actually the case, that, that physical puberty, physical, physical maturity should correspond with psychological maturity. Now, some of us would argue that we don't reach psychological maturity until we're at least 57. Do we ever hit that? <laughs> I, I mean, we, to be yeah. honest with you. <laughs> Uh, but all, all kidding aside, um, s- somewhere around age age eighteen twenty, that's kind of what nature was thinking. Right. Uh, but that those days are gone. Right. Uh, right. Nowadays, um, you'll see kids. Uh, in fact, it's changing for for boys and girls. So they'll become sexually mature at twelve, thirteen, fourteen, mm-hmm. um, and and the consequences of it, of course, go far beyond uh, the physical things. Uh, before we wrap things up, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you think is important? Yeah, um, maybe just what a person should do. Yeah. Let's say a, a woman has endometriosis. It's not always uh, clear that they have that. Uh, they might just have pain. So they sh- sh- obviously should be seeing their doctor and, and get evaluated. But if that's the diagnosis, then what's the answer? The answer is to get all the animal products out of your diet. And don't take this on faith. Just give it a try for two or three menstrual cycles, two or three months. Get the animal products out of your diet completely. What that will do is that eliminates all the animal fat and it greatly increases fiber. Step two, keep the oils really low and oily foods. So learn non-oil cooking techniques when you're at a restaurant. Ask them to minimize oils and avoid things like peanut butter and guacamole and so forth. Now I know we love these foods. Um, Take a few months and just set them aside. Uh, what will typically happen is you'll see a little bit of weight loss. Uh, Catherine described that. Yeah. Um, your energy is better. Your digestion is better. But see if your symptoms don't start to improve. And then what we believe is also going to happen is that fertility then gets better. And as you know, Catherine was prepared to have a hysterectomy to solve the problem. She never had it. Nope. The endometriosis went away. She's got three children now. Wonderful. Yeah. So I would encourage a- any woman who has this to, again, don't take this on faith. Just give it a try in your own life. Animal products out. Keep the oily foods low. See how you do. I'm really glad that you and I had the opportunity to talk about this today because I've had so many listeners write in and ask about endometriosis. Can you please do a show on this? I didn't realize how prevalent of a problem this actually was. So many women out there have this. It's it's very, very prevalent. And, and there's... Um a lot of sort of detective work trying to go on, uh, going on to try to see what contributes to it. And, and some people have said, well, there could also be roles for environmental chemicals that cause, that, that maybe is what causes the endometrial cells to migrate in the wrong direction. That's all possible. But with regard to what are we going to do about it, let's make a diet change, see if we can't get better. In the episode notes, you will find a link to that episode that features that conversation with Dr. Barnard, but also the interview with Catherine Lawrence Ireland, where she opens up about her journey back to health, that miraculous turnaround for endometriosis. And also in the episode notes is a link to pick up a copy of Your Body Imbalance by Dr. Barnard, if you are so inclined. Now, a few more notes about endometriosis. If you hop on the World Health Organization's website and you look it up, you will see among the key facts this sentence, quote, at present, there is no known cure for endometriosis and treatment is usually aimed at controlling symptoms, end quote. But nowhere under controlling symptoms is there any mention of diet. There are plenty of mentions for medication and for surgery, typical treatments, but there is next to nothing by way of lifestyle changes. The closest thing to that is actually on the womenshealth.gov website, which is part of HHS here in the United States. But even there, 
the information is aimed more at alleviating pain than addressing the root cause. They talk about things like acupuncture and chiropractic care and certain herbs and supplements. But under prevention, in bold lettering, it does say this. They say, keeping a low percentage of body fat can reduce your chances of having endometriosis. And they also say to limit alcohol because it can raise estrogen levels and ditto for caffeine. And there they point to studies that show having more than one caffeinated drink per day also raises estrogen levels. But the low body fat percentage, that is where a whole food plant-based diet comes into play. And if you are struggling, there is one other book I would encourage you to check out. It's a wonderful read from a former guest of the show by the name of Jessica Murnane. And her book is called Know Your Endo. And I will link off to our interview in the episode notes as well. It is another fantastic story. One that will have you rethinking some more things. It's one that gives you a double dose of science and optimism. Which also, hopefully, is what you got here today. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Drs. Asha Supermanian and Neil Barnard for joining us. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.